Welcome everyone to the Caribbean Science Fiction Network, a celebration of all things fantasy, folklore, speculative fiction, and of course, science fiction. Today I have with me two-time Code Boot Award winner, Imam Baksh from Guyana. I was trying to do something that was a subversion of the epic tale. The epic hero is usually trained in combat. They usually have a noble birth. They usually uh, are very strong. And my main character had a very common birth, no great training, no physique. So this was a, a kind of case where I was saying, look, this is an outsider. And it works on the level of, look, this is a Guyanese kid going into the realm of uh, traditionally Western Lovecraftian apocalypse fiction. So I'm subverting there. I'm going to subvert stylistically as well. I wanted to fight back against that and say, look, you, you're misunderstanding this thing. This is not a case of these kids being less than intelligent or that they are putting in less effort. They're lazy kids or bad kids or anything like that. I want you to understand that there is potential and uh, excellence within these people. Imam, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Gerald. I'm happy to be here. We're going to focus on Dark of the Sea today, but we're also going to pull in um, the, a previous novel, uh, Children of the Spider. Begin by giving us an introduction into Dark of the Sea, what happens. So the Dark of the Sea is about a 15-year-old boy named Danish who lives in the Essequibo coast of Guyana. And it, he has a pretty aimless life, no real conviction or sense of his place in the world. Uh, the area he lives is a depressed area, poverty, a high suicide rate, low education attainment. And there is, among the young people, at least certain demographics of them, uh, a lack of hope, I think. Um, and that reflects a real, the place where I live right now, it, it reflects a real segment of that population. And Danish had something wonderful enter his life, something magical, which is he encountered a fair maid, which is a Guyanese and Trinidadian term for what most of the world knows as a mermaid. And she tries to kill him. And at that point, he discovers that he can see underwater, he can breathe underwater during this fight with her. And at some point, he actually ends up saving her because uh, she is not well. And she re he returns her to her people. He discovers an underwater city of wonder. Uh, these people are very suspicious of him, though, because he is cursed with what they call the mark of Zadogwa. And Zadogwa is an ancient Lovecraftian god, great power, he's three billion years old. And they assign Medusa to kind of be a prison warden to him, to police him, to check and make sure that he is not a source of evil and corruption. And while they're investigating why he has this mark, the oracles of the civilization under the ocean predict that the Dogwa is due to annihilate human life on the world. And Danish may be the person who could stop him because the mark that he has enables him to tap into the power of the god himself if he does it right. So they end up sending him on a quest to enable this power within him and he has to do things like recover the thing that the Cyclops loves the most or ancient secrets that are written on a stone tablet. Uh, 
And that's the meat of the book. And then later on, we find out why is it exactly that Danish has this mark of Zetagwa, this ancient god. And it's part of a family secret that has to do with the fact that his uncle is a murderer, which is something we find out early in the book. And then by the climax of the book, Zetagwa, the great god, invades Guyana to start the end of the whole world. And Danish realizes that he can't win a physical fight or a fight of power with this entity. And he has to find a different way of solving this problem and preserving his world. As I mentioned before, you're a two-time Codebert Award winner. And for those listening, Codebert Award, uh, excellence in, in young adult literature. You've won the Caribbean uh, version twice, 2015, Dark, uh, Children of the Spider, and now 2018, the, the Dark of the Sea. So what about young adult literature um, you were drawn to and what you felt you could do with this, um, this genre, we could say, um, that, you know, that you felt particularly inclined to write about uh, young, young adult characters? I have always read a lot of young adults, and I do enjoy writing it. And I'm at the stage now where I've done it to the point where I do prefer it. Uh, there was a time where I wanted to be a mainstream science fiction writer, a horror writer. Um, but I think now I'm settled into this group of young adults. You had Barbara Lalla on at one point, and she talked about that uh, situation where children, young people see the world with these fresh eyes that have no history in them. And that's one of the aspects I think of young adult literature that's appealing to me. You have this thing where people at any stage of their life can be questioning their values, changing their values. You could have a person at seventh year who's going through regret and realigning their priorities in life. You can have somebody who's out of, fresh out of university trying to find their place in the world and maturing. But usually they're changing from one value system to another. With young people in the teenage years, they're not working off an existing value system. They're coming off a blank slate. The values they have are not values they assembled into their own psyche. They're values that they've gotten from teachers, parents, societal figures, uh, institutions. And that's the point where they start to question things for the first time and say to themselves, I agree with this. I disagree with that. I oppose that. And that's where you can tell some really in, um, some stories that have real power because it's that process we've all been through of questioning the world, but it's the freshest, most uh, vigorous aspect of that process. So let's talk about those two novels, Children of the Spider and the dark of the sea. Did anything change for you in terms of your writing, your perspective, your style? Did anything change from Children of the Spider to the dark of the sea? Uh, in terms of style, one of the things I did was I was quite rigid in structure. Uh, Children of the Spider, I think each chapter is just about 3,000 words. It's alternating like clockwork point of view between the two main characters. Each chapter ends in something of a cliffhanger. It's very calculated. And then I got to Children of the Spider and it- Dark of the Sea. Yes, Dark of the Sea. So it's very unstructured. There are no chapters. There are scene breaks and that's it. Some scenes are 
less than a half a page. Some scenes are five, 10 pages, etc. And part of that is that um, the, what I was trying to do with it is subvert epic stories of the past, things like uh, Gilgamesh and you know the Greek myths of Homer and so on. Epic poems through the European tradition, they have a certain standard and structure. Um, and of course, epic, they're long. And at one point, mm-hmm. I had um, I had subtitled children, sorry, uh, Dark of the Sea, I had subtitled it as an epic short story, because I, which of course is a contradiction. I, I was trying to do something that was a subversion of the epic tale. The epic hero is usually trained in combat. They usually have a noble birth. They usually uh, are very strong. And my main character had a very common birth, no great training, no physique. He, so this was a, a kind of st- case here. I was saying, look, this is an outsider. And it works on the level of, look, this is a Guyanese kid going into the realm of uh, traditionally Western Lovecraftian apocalypse fiction. So I'm subverting there. I'm going to subvert stylistically as well. So that, that whole idea of um, the epic short story made me very amorphous with my structure in the book. Uh, another thing that happened specifically is my use of Creole language. So mm-hmm. I, I'm a big advocate of Creole language being uh, taken out of this ghetto that it sometimes falls into. But I do recognize we live in a world where we have a standard English that is an international uh, medium of communication, and I don't have any particular hostility to it. So my usual setup is to put the narration in standard English, but give my characters who speak Creole the chance to speak Creole. What happened in Children of the Spider is that I had telepathy. And so Mm -hmm. the telepathy in that book, I chose to go with standard English. And the reason I did was that I had said to myself, okay, standard English represents a bare presentation of facts. And therefore, the telepathy represents a bare presentation of thought. So I put my standard English, uh, my telepathic speech, so to speak, I put that in standard English. And I think in retrospect, I'm not sure that was the right decision because it seemed to say that thought exists in standard English or that uh, the speech that comes out as Creole is a less than idealized version of the thought, which is kind of pure. If you think of it in terms of, you know, Plato and the ideal and all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. So I, when I came to dark of the sea, I have telepathy again, because the characters wear earrings, which translates the speech of people who speak to them. So he goes to this underwater world. He's talking to the ancient gods. They're not speaking English. They're not speaking Creole English. They're speaking whatever language they have. But he hears them as if they're speaking Creole English, Guyanese English. And I was very happy to push that kind of thing where thoughts are coming through to be manifested in Creole, which is a big change, I think, from uh, Children of the Spider. And mm-hmm. there's a lot of debate about it. And it was a challenge because usually when you write about things like ancient gods and epics, you kind of end up into this like false Shakespearean tone of voice, especially for villains. 
they, they would speak like Emperor Palpatine, kind of flowery, you know. And to try and write a villain speaking in Creole, especially knowing the biases people have against Creole. You know, if you speak Creole to a group of school kids who are Creole speakers, they will giggle because it seems so out of place to them. You have to get over that kind of um, novelty to where they start that, that resistance to seeing Creole in an unusual place. And then you can try to establish it. So stylistically, artistically, it was a big challenge for me to try and produce the grandeur of this god using Creole speech out of his mouth. Let's talk about the, the protagonist, let's, let's talk about the hero, because as with Children of the Spider, and we can talk about the nuances here, but the, um, the idea of a person with a disability in the Caribbean comes up. Why was this important for you to investigate how people with disabilities are able to do these, these great things? Right, so that question um, has an answer on several levels. First of all, on a purely mechanical level, you want to give challenges to your characters. Um, it gives them something to fight against, and right away that engages the reader in what's happening. Mm. Uh, it gives them something specific to themselves, so they become more real in the eyes of the reader as well. And also, uh, the reader becomes sympathetic to that person um, from the outset. And so you get them on the side of that character, rooting for that character. So that's some writerly trade craft thing. But moving it up a, a level, I myself am partially blind in both eyes because of an issue I've had my whole life. And it's been, it got gradually worse until about 2016, where I found medication that keeps it in check. So when I wrote this book, The Dark of the Sea, I, was, I had just arrived at the worst level of my visual impairment. And I was preparing for it to get worse. I was exploring, sorry, I meant, I met Children of the Spider. Uh, yes, I was preparing for it to get worse. I was exploring technologies on my computer like magnification, high contrast um, screens. I was looking at text-to-speech and also speaking text into the computer. And so I was, I was becoming familiar with those technologies, not because I absolutely needed them, but because I feared that I would reach that point soon. And as it turned out, I did find a medication that worked and I never got as bad as that. So when I came to write the character of Joseph in Children of the Spider, I wanted to have him be somebody who was technologically savvy. And it coincidentally, my biggest uh, experience with technology at that period of time was in these assistive technologies. So I decided, okay, let's have him uh, be somebody who uses assistive technologies. And I want to break away a little bit for a digression of why I wanted him to be technologically savvy. Joseph is an indigenous person, sometimes called an Amerindian, but indigenous is the word they tend to prefer yeah. nowadays. Um, in Guyana, there are very specific biases against indigenous people that still exist in society. Uh, they're, they're referred to by the word book, which goes all the way back to the 1700s under the Dutch. Mm -hmm. And um, I know Bok means different things in different parts of the Caribbean, I've been told. 
And generally speaking, yeah. it's a descriptive word, but that word can be weaponized depending on the context and tone to sexualize indigenous girls because they are often drawn into sex trade. And there are some scenes in Children of the Spider where the character Tara, who is also indigenous, kind of hints at her involvement on the periphery of that sexual trafficking industry. The other bias that is heavily represented in Guyana against indigenous people is that they are uneducated, uncultured, or stupid. Um, there is a saying in Guyana, you can take the buck out the bush, but you can't take the bush out the buck. Uh, which is funny, but you have, when you recognize the inherent bias there, right? What it means is that yeah. if you take this indigenous person from their jungle yeah, yeah. habitat where they have grown up, and you bring them to the city, they will have their, their ways, their traditional ways, and they will not be able to adjust to modern life. And that is a bias that exists, I think, against every minority at some point where they are, especially when that transition from, uh, from the rural or jungle, the wilderness area to the city is represented. You know, you, you have this thing where, for example, Gandhi goes to see the queen in his dhoti and he gets criticized for not wearing proper clothes, that kind of thing. Um, so it was important to me to say, hey, yeah. here is an indigenous boy who is technologically savvy. And because I chose assistive technologies, I said, OK, well, let's make him someone who needs assistive technologies. But I didn't want to do blind because I was blind. And I had already written a short story from the point of view of a blind kid a few years before. So I was like, let me try something new. Let's go with deaf. And I ended up with a deaf character. I said, this will be a challenge for him in the story. It will be a challenge for me to write. It will be interesting to explore. And also, I came up with this idea that uh, the damage to the ear, which causes deafness, well, the ear is where you also have your sense of balance. And what if and I've known a deaf kid. I had a deaf kid who was a neighbor, and mm. he had a horrible sense of balance because of the damage he had to his ear. Um, and he, so we live in the countryside. You try to walk across a canal on a little log. He couldn't do it. He couldn't balance and He would fall into canals trying to cross them, which is funny when you see him as, you know, a 12-year-old kid trying to do it. Um, and you're, you're his friend. You're laughing at him with, you're laughing with him. You're not laughing at him. Um, but I thought to myself, well, let's subvert that. And that what happened to his ear caused him to be deaf. But how about if it gave him hyper balance? What if he is now acrobatically gifted because of what happened to his sense of balance with the same ear damage? Mm -hmm. So that's how Joseph ended up as a character with a disability. Um, the, the computations behind that. Dark of the Sea, the concept is reversed. And I want to take a bunch of kids who are underprivileged in the worst high school in Guyana um, and have something wonderful enter their life, which is where the mermaid enters Danish's life. So that is the dynamic. But I am also a trained teacher and I've been in the school system. Mm. I run a kindergarten and preschool to this day. I've done so for the last 12 years. So I am also specialized in literacy and reading. So I'm aware of how the school system here in Guyana is really not prepared to handle kids with disabilities. 
And I'm also aware that a disability doesn't mean you're stupid. So you asked specifically about Danish, who is suffering from dyslexia also. Uh, but I don't know if you picked up that his friends each have their yeah. own disability. So, uh, or their own circumstances that explain why they cannot be gifted at school. So Robot, for instance, has an abusive dad. Uh, we have one character who is an indigenous boy who lives in the lake. Mm -hmm. And he is actually not suffering any intellectual disability, but he lives far away and he is in poverty. He can't afford books. He can't get access. And there is also um, the character of the girl. What happened with her is I hinted it in the book, but she is suffering from some sexual abuse. And I thought it was too distracting and a little too lurid, and I didn't want to get into that kind of stuff. So I held back on the portrayal there. But basically, we are looking at these children, these teenagers, who have been discarded from the education system, set aside and said, look, we're not giving you resources. We're not giving you the best teachers. We're not giving you the best school building. Um, and we're not giving you privileges that we give to like the students at Queens College. And I wanted to fight back against that and say, look, you, you're misunderstanding this thing. This is not a case of these kids being less than intelligent or that they are uh, putting in less effort. They're lazy kids or bad kids or anything like that. I want you to understand that there is potential and uh, excellence within these people. As I show them to you, you start to understand that. And so I had to bring in these kind of real world issues in their life that would affect their academic performance to kind of explain to the audience, kind of concrete, make it concrete yeah. that these are smart kids, but they have issues. And so that's how the dyslexia entered into the dark of the sea. Um, so you may have realized that with me being partially blind and my brother having dyslexia, it is also a personal thing for me to say, I want people who have disabilities to be characters in my book. So that's, that's also a very big consideration. What I find was the dark of the sea. I got a stronger sense of place in 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 this novel um, than I did in, in Children of the Spider. I don't see a strong East Indian presence in Caribbean SF, Caribbean fantasy science fiction, or as strong. Um, and in this novel, we have we have very we have we have these various uh, these East Indian cultural elements. I love the Ravi B, not the Ravi B tickets. Um, so we have the Chutney music, then we have Bollywood, and of course, Guyana. We have many references to the Guyanese flag. Um, so I want to talk about the, the importance of, of the East Indian presence in Caribbean SF in general, um, and what, and what your, your work does um, as, as part of that. Right, so uh, Children of the Spider takes place uh, two places. It starts out in the indigenous area, and then it moves to the capital city, which is very metropolitan, and it has a large mix mm -hmm. of African ancestry, Indian mm -hmm. ancestry, mixed race ancestry. And we kind of mm -hmm. skip over the Essequibo Coast, which is where I live, and that is a primarily Indian area, up to 80% mm -hmm. Indian um, ancestry. Uh, 
So I never have spent that much time in the indigenous areas, but I did spend some. Um, and I went to school in the city Georgetown for six, seven years, uh, plus university for another four years. So I, I can describe that a little bit. But the area where I grew up, the Essequibo Coast, this heavily East Indian area, and also the area where I wrote the book, that area is very steep in East Indian culture and tradition. And it's mostly Hindu with some Muslim, uh, uh, a fraction of Islamic adherents, right? So, and I myself grew up in a Muslim family, but I, there was a Sunday school across the street and I went there to hang out and my friends were mostly Hindu and I would go to the temple to hang out with them and listen to the drums, which I loved. Um, you know, so I kind of absorbed all this stuff from a very early age. And mm -hmm. as I'm writing the book, I'm looking out the window. The conversations I have are conversations with kids just like Danish. And especially since at the, one of the things I do is I run a library here in the Eskimo Coast. So I have children from age four all the way up to 18 who come in looking for books and we have conversations about their books. Yeah. Uh, so I was kind of immersed in this Indo-Guyanese Caribbean world while writing this book. And I'm writing about it. So I didn't have a specific agenda in terms of I'm going to institute or I'm going to try to inject a perspective of Hinduism or Indianness into this book. I was just saying, this is Danish. This is Danish's world. This is what Danish knows. And in some ways, I am actually trying to show the limits of his world. One of the aspects of the character is that he does not look beyond the horizon. He does not think about his life in five years or his life in another location. He has been beaten down to the point where he just exists and accepts. And so he knows these things and he knows them well. And once he meets the mermaid, Medusa, and starts to step out into the world, he explores different cultures. He starts to hear stories about the monkey king of China. He starts to hear stories about uh, the Greeks. And he starts to realize, oh, there's so much more. And there is a parallelism going on. So as his encounters in the fantasy world in, with, under the ocean, broadens his mind. When he's back in the Ezekiel Coast, he becomes changed. And he's moving back and forth between these worlds. And every time he comes back to Ezekiel, his he starts to push himself beyond his boundaries that he usually would have been mm -hmm. comfortable with. And in a way, it's a story of breaking free from only being immersed in East Indian culture. Not that I'm sending any specific message about that. The East Indianness in the book is very much a product of the choice of character, that specific boy who is an amalgam of many boys I know like him. I grew up with them. I myself was not one of them because I was much more privileged. I had access to books. I had parents who made me read. And then I fell in love with reading. They enabled me to continue reading. and. You know, I, I freely admit I was a very privileged person within this community, but I could observe what was happening yeah. with my friends. And 
my friends 30 years ago compared to the boys who live in Eskimo now, there's not much difference. And so to get in the head and life of such a person, I would have to reflect the world they lived in. And that by necessity said, okay, it's chutney music, it's drinking rum, it's working in the rice fields, it's riding your bicycle around in the mud, all these fun things, these horrible things. And I wasn't trying to show an image that was all fun or all horrible. I was just trying to say, this is the natural element of this character. And let me show you what it's like. And I think you mentioned earlier that it seemed to have the, a greater sense of place than Children of the Spider. And I suspect, I, I, I feel like I did give a good sense of place in Children of the Spider, and I've gotten feedback from people who say that. But you're correct. The fact that I grew up here and that I wrote it while living here, and like I said, I could see this world out my window as I wrote it, I think I was able to very precisely kind of nail down what this world is like. This brings us to the end of part one of my interview with Imam Baksh. Stay tuned for part two on the Caribbean Science Fiction Network. Bye.